0: Episode 142, Greatest Man or Monster? What can I say, everyone? It's an emotional moment. (laughs) I realised while I was away that without the podcast, my life lacked a purpose, a focus. Who am I? What is my identity? Until this moment when all is reconciled and made whole once more. I exaggerate a little for effect, obviously, but it is remarkably good to get back in front of the microphone once again. So let's start the service with notices, shall we? On occasion in the past, but in fact increasingly rarely, I recommended an audiobook, courtesy of Audible. I can recommend Audible from personal experience. It's so much more affordable than CD, and there's a massive range. And... You can get a free audiobook on a 30-day trial or discounted membership when you follow the link from my website, thehistoryofengland.com. This week, given that we're moving on to Henry V, I suppose I can but recommend my old A-level play, Henry V by that bloke, what's his name? This is an audio recording with Timothy West, so I hope it's good and it's the full thing. Before I took that most undeserved and frankly outrageous, gratuitous holiday, we had got to the end of Henry the Fourth, and therefore arrived at a period where the next two monarchs each have a claim to be on the one hand the greatest monarch of England, Henry V, or the very worst, Henry VI. So today we're going to kick off with Henry V and have a look at his reputation in history and what the lad was like. We should start, of course, by kneeling at the Shrine of the Ultimate authoritative Histories, a shrine accompanied by two weighty and hallowed tomes. 1066 and all that by Seller and Yateman. And The Ladybird, Kings and Queens of England, 1968 edition. Although actually, in that regard, Henry V actually had a complete book dedicated solely to him called Henry V, An Adventure from History. A collective cup runneth over. So, Salar and Yateman and 1066, etc. is a bit of a joy, if short. On the death of Henry IV, part 2, his son, Prince Hal, who had won all English hearts by his youthful pranks, such as trying on the crown while his father lay dying, determined to justify public expectation by becoming the ideal English king. It ends with... He then displaced the dolphin as ruler of Anjou, Menjou, Pilou, Maine, Touraine, again and again, and realising he was now too famous to live long, expired at the ideal moment. Actually, this is a good point. Unlike Edward III, who really lived a bit too long for an unblemished reputation, Henry made sure he popped his clogs before reality caught up with him. And so to the ladybird kings and queens of England. The one-pager says, Henry was a popular king, although he persecuted those who did not accept the teachings of the Catholic Church. He enlarged the navy and made England strong at sea and on land. Which is an illuminating comment, saying as much about English conceits as it does about Henry V. It's the first soupçon of the association of England's national characteristics with dissent and Protestantism. It's the first sign of the idealisation of the navy in English history. The longer book is even more illuminating. At the start it says, When Henry V was a boy, it was said of him that he was So swift a runner that he could give chase to a deer and catch the fleetest of the herd. That is written in an old book. It may not be quite true because a deer can run very fast indeed. How lovely, just in case we didn't get the concept of exaggeration, which is, after all, every schoolchild's favourite literary technique alongside sarcasm. In that book, by the way, are pictures I can remember to this day, fantastic dynamic pictures that are the real triumph of the whole series. Anyway, it ends with a pretty standard interpretation of him. Henry was buried in Westminster Abbey in 1422. His shield, helmet, and saddle still hang above his tomb, a fitting tribute to a great soldier. But Henry was more than that. He was a wise and just ruler. So, are we getting the picture? A bit of a dude. And there's going to be a lot more of that. But before I launch off, there is an argument. Though it will take many centuries to appear that Henry was massively successful, yes, but also something of a monster. Where does firm governance tip into tyranny? Where does decisiveness become brutality? But anyway, the national high opinion of Henry V goes back very much to Henry's contemporaries, which gives us a chance to talk about the main chroniclers of the period and basically they are relentlessly positive, very often entertaining, and all to be treated with caution. But then what historical source is not to be treated so? Let's kick off with Jester Henrici Quinti, or The Deeds of Henry V, written possibly by some royal chaplain, or at least someone who was with his boss the king at Agincourt. It's written sometime between November 1416 and July 1417, so it's pleasantly contemporary. But its very immediacy, and its approach, suggests that it's some kind of propaganda. By approach, I mean its utter conviction that Henry was entirely justified in invading France, and that the Lollards were hideous and evil heretics, and their leader, John Oldcastle, a, quote, man of bloody and unheard-of treachery. Your chronicler was not above casually embroidering the truth to add a bit of dramatic tension to the proceedings, and why not? After all, what is the truth, ladies and gentlemen? What really is the truth but a relative construct? Anyway, next, Thomas Elmham, a monk and churchman, wrote Libre Metricus de Henrico Quinto, just a year after the jester, which simply aims to big up Henry's government, essentially. And the official image was then further confirmed when Henry's brother Humphrey, Humph, to his friends, commissioned an official history by an Italian humanist called Tito Livio. And the book was called The Vita Henrici Quinti, The Life of Henry V. So, hands up, who thinks an official history is going to go for a revisionist, hard-hitting, myth-busting expose? Well, quite. So, we've had the Vita, we've had the Jester and so enter the Vita et Jester, Henrici Quinti, written before 1421, and hey, here's another tract, extolling the virtues of the king and dissing the French for their manifold iniquities. Kel a hundred years later, and the English chroniclers were still at it. The anonymous chronicle called First English Life of Henry V followed a by-now-honoured and well-trodden path of extorting the latest king, in this case Henry Seventh, to emulate the glorious Henry V in his piety and valour, or, in the words of the chronicler, his great wisdom and discretion in all his acts. While all this was going on with monkey types tripping over their habits to sing Henry's praises, the original gnarled monk was still going strong, our very own Thomas of Walsingham. Thomas was very well connected and most historians I have read clearly admire his work but there's nothing radical about the lad he's anti-french anti-heretic and pro-lancastrian and Henry V is the man he did not leave his like upon earth among christian kings or princes and the most magnificent and illustrious these were Thomas's judgments Another chronicler we've heard a lot of, Adam of Usk, was by this stage, although still alive, elderly and removed from the centre of events. The Brute, another chronicle we've heard from before, is relentlessly patriotic. And so that's that. As far as the English contemporaries are concerned, Henry V is a hero, warrior, prince, man of God. But I can see at least one of you has spotted the obvious flaw. These are all English commentators and presumably therefore deeply, deeply biased, and indeed open to influence from such a powerful king. You might remember that while I consider Alfred the greatest of English kings, I am also aware that I am a victim of the propaganda that is Asser and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So, surely the French chroniclers will put us right and provide a counterbalance to that relentless praise. And true enough, there is a bit of that. A tyrant and a persecutor, thunders one. But sadly, for those of you revisionists out there looking to destroy a solid reputation, there is as much that is reluctantly positive as there is predictably negative. And given that Henry was putting their country to the sword, that has to count rather strongly in his favour. So the Histoire de Charles VI did indeed point out Henry's lack of Ruth, but admitted that the French were the architects of their own ruin, and actually they could have been a lot worse than Henry, who was basically pretty wise and seemed to be giving the French people better governance than their own lot had. Just like another chronicler, Angorat de Montreuil, these chroniclers describe in fine detail outrage and horror the pains and destruction visited on them by the English and fully express their hatred of the English tyrants. But this doesn't extend to Henry himself. The summary is that Henry's ruthlessness is undeniable, but while he rules without mercy, he also ruled without favour and with wisdom, a sort of harsh but fair thing. So the historian is forced to accept that in terms of contemporary writers, and there are a fair few of them, they all seem to be saying the same thing. So maybe it's not just propaganda. Maybe they really did think he was that good. And it's worth noting that in the Battle of Agincourt there was, in the minds of contemporaries, divine approval for their view, the ultimate sign of God's favour. Through the centuries, this is the line relentlessly followed. Holland Shed and Shakespeare, of course, we know very well. And in this, Shakespeare was simply joining the ever-growing band of groupies gathered around the ghost of the paragon. In the 18th century, more detailed history, analysis and use of source material appears with a historian called Thomas Goodwin in 1704, and then in the late 19th century we get to the archetypal Victorian William Stubbs, our very own Stubbsy, whose Whiggish opinion we've heard before, and he went for it with Henry. By far the greatest king in Christendom, in whom the dying energies of medieval life kindled for a short moment into flame. Bah, yuck. He was joined by others. The Typical Medieval Hero was the subtitle of the biography of him written by C. L. Kingsford. But of modern historians, it was K. B. Macfarlane, the hugely influential Oxford historian who set the tone. In a famous article of 1972, Macfarlane didn't hold back. Henry, he said, was superlatively gifted. By the end of his rule, he had transformed the spirit of his own people and become the arbiter of Christian Europe, dwarfing emperor and pope. And in summary, Henry was no less than the greatest man that ever ruled England. Other historians have consistently, to this current day, continued and expanded that theme. Maurice Keane stressed that Henry's qualities were absolutely in line with those valued by his contemporaries, and it's a crucial point, is it not? The medieval peasant or monk or lord on the Clapham omnibus didn't give a tinker's curse about a lot of stuff us modern folk worry about. They wanted a strong king, chivalrous, pious, devoted to justice, and that's exactly what they got in Henry. I'm going to introduce a chap called John Gower to you here. Some of you may know him already, and I may have introduced him to you before. He's a poet, a sort of contemporary of Chaucer. I'm not sure he's in any modern GCSE or A-level curriculum these days, but he was when I was a lad, and I am telling you, if you think Chaucer tortured small boys at school, he was Tom Clancy in comparison to John Gower. One sight of his poems had the same impact on me as the spindle had on Sleeping Beauty, plus some. However, more intelligent and sensitive people than I obviously think he's great. His big gig was Confessio Amantis, the lover's confession. And apparently it's jolly good. Although, funnily enough, there was a 19th century critic called James Russell Lowell, who, because of his comment, I now love as a brother. Because he wrote that Gower, quote, raised tediousness to the precision of science. Hear, hear, Jimmy, baby, hear, hear. But anyway, this delightful poet was very clear about what a king should be and do, and he's usefully representative of the view of medieval man, and it's super important that we never forget that our modern, western, liberal, egalitarian and pluralistic view is alien to the world medieval. Gower and indeed other commentators were clear. All hopes of salvation and the health of a people rested foursquare on the ruler's shoulders. Gower wrote, Where a virtuous king does not rule, the people are unsound and lack good morals. I'm sorry, I am once again labouring the point that context is everything. A medieval king was an expression of perfect knighthood and chivalry. As such, he was expected to be obedient to God, to pursue unbending justice to his people, distribute largesse. Knighthood was a warrior caste. Peace sprung from success at war or entailed weakness, and there really wasn't much ground in between. So for Maurice Keane, Henry's destructive wars of conquest were a record of enormous achievement. For him, Henry was a medieval model, pious, brave, firm in delivering justice, and through his wars gave England a unity of purpose they had lacked up until now. Historian Gerald Harris stressed Henry's intelligence, decisiveness, self-confidence, ability to inspire respect and devotion, his single-minded pursuit of his goals. And then finally, Anne Curry described him as the golden boy. For every bad thing to say about Henry, Curry claims there are dozens of good things you can say. All of this sounds, in the way, a little bit dull. Where is the controversy? Where is the debate? Where's the uncertainty we like to have about good king, bad king, so that we can write angry posts on the interweb? Well, actually, there is a thread. Rather surprisingly, there's the faintest hint of it in the voice of one of the commentators to whom I would have thought Henry would be a hero. It's our friend Winnie. He died with his work unfinished. He had once more committed his country to the murderous dynastic war with France. He had been the instrument of religious and social persecution of the Lollards. The gleaming king, cut off untimely, went to his tomb amid the lamentations of his people. Now, is it my imagination, or is there a note of criticism in there? I mean, yes, sure, gleaming king is pretty positive, but two things spring to mind. First, he mentioned the persecution of the Lollards. Now, to your Whig historian, the Lollards were the forerunners of the Protestant Reformation, and the Protestant Reformation was an unalloyed good thing. Capital G, capital T. To the modern historian, supposing the Lollard... To the modern historian, supposing that Lollardy was Protestant light is very questionable indeed, and the Protestant Reformation in England was every bit as much about a king and his heir as it was about religion. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. But there's also the other point the murderous dynastic wars bit. Churchill appears to take the view that there's a downside to all this claiming of the crown of the greatest nation in medieval Christendom by a bunch of pasty-faced blokes from a small, soggy island, that maybe all this ambition is draining away a nation's wealth. So, let's build on that. French historians, as you might expect, have a thing or two to say. They can't argue with Henry's chops as a soldier and administrator. But they can have a hack at his piety, his cruelty, such as the butchering of prisoners at Agincourt, his brutality and unrestrained ambition. As I write, Henry is already sounding less attractive. They also contemptuously dismiss his attempts to rule in France by claiming that he failed to fit in and understand the French customs and way of doing things. Ha, so unlike Billy the Conk then, yeah? Kettles, pots, black, you know, people in glass houses, all that sort of thing. But really, even modern French historians really don't put their collective back into dissing Henry. There's a distressing lack of vitriol. Nope, for vitriol, you need the recent English historians. And at last, a strain has emerged that doesn't simply look at Henry V as the great hero. His military achievements are a bit difficult to argue with, but his personality, manner of achieving them and long-term impact are quite possible to argue with. So, in 1961, a historian E.F. Jacob wrote, In the last analysis, Henry was an adventurer, not a statesman. A historian called Richard Vaughan described Henry as perfidious and one of the champion double-crossers of the age. Incidentally, and this is really a digression, Richard Vaughan died in April 2014 and was a noted twitcher, as well as historian, and I read his obit while researching. One thing I noted was that he said that history ended in 1492, so I am full of admiration for his dedication to medieval history. So, I am full of admiration for his dedication to medieval history. But there was a delightful compliment in the obit about his skill at catching in his hand food regurgitated by nesting swifts. Now, how's about that for a party trick? Anyway, Richard Vaughan was not alone. David Douglas described Henry as revoltingly cruel. And basically argued that he had a carefully constructed public persona, which was very much at odds with the cruel reality behind the mask. Well, we're all actors, David. By day, I am a genial podcaster, but every night, I do Sudoku's. No reputation can survive complete honesty. Desmond Seward argued there was something a little inhuman about Henry, and I have to see, and I have to say, I see what he means. There is something intimidating about its absolute cold-hearted calculation and control that's a little scary. But it was 1988 and TB Pugh that really got the wagon rolling. Pugh hit Henry where it would have hurt Henry most, his vision. And he has a point. Henry returned to the ambition of his forefathers, not his own new vision. And without wanting to slay any sacred cows, if that's what you do with sacred cows, Agincourt was surely a rather strategically unimportant tumble in a muddy field. Henry was at very least not creating a new vision for England as a person he, as a person, Pew had a hack at Henry for being cold and singularly lacking in generosity as a king, he criticises a lack of innovation in legislation and finances but the big one is the contention that the invasion of France was not in England's long-term interests and ended up tearing his country apart. Most recently, Ian Mortimer has a lot of fun taking up a position, which is what Ian Mortimer does, since he knows the value of entertainment as well as history. For Mortimer, Henry is a deeply flawed individual and was, quote, undermined by his own pride and overwhelmed by his own authority. A wanton destroyer of lives, and conclusive proof that a man may be a hero, and yet a monster. And so we are left with this, ladies and gentlemen. In the red corner, we have a smattering of modern historians who might find Henry's skills impressive, but find the man scary, and his single-mindedness terrifying and monstrous. In the blue corner, we have Henry's contemporaries, And it has to be said, the vast majority of historians who, like Gerald Harris, sum up Henry thus. The model king of high intelligence and disciplined vigour, who showed dignity, reserve and inner confidence. Brisk, decisive and indefatigable, demanding of others and not sparing himself. So there you go. As normal, you will hopefully be able to decide for yourself after a few episodes of the History of England. OK, everyone, for those of you who are following me in real time, as it were, and have therefore had a gap of a few months since episode 140, which was the last narrative episode, let's have a quick recap-et, so that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet on the same page, saving multiple stitches in time, playing on the level playing field, and any other cliché you'd like to employ. We'd come to the end of the reign of Henry IV. During the reign of his father we've seen the development of Prince Henry's character, learning the tricks of the military trade in Wales and on the field of Shrewsbury. In the process, he'd not only acquired a military education, but quite possibly also a hideous scar down the right-hand side of his face. There's a tradition that Henry had lived a life of wild partying with his brothers in his youth in the big smoke, and when he came into his inheritance, the shutters had come down and he turned into a paragon of virtue and professionalism. As we discussed, we really don't know if that actually happened, but what is pretty clear is that he showed an early aptitude for power and real politic. For a year, he took government out of his poor father's hands, and when Dad made a comeback, he did whatever grovelling was required to get him back into the game. Forget pride, just do what has to be done. And then, of course, we have the famous death scene where supposedly Princey can't wait to try on the crown for size while his own father lay twisting and turning in the croaking process. The physical description of Henry comes down to us as a bit of disparity between inputs and outputs. In terms of outputs, Odin and his eight-legged steed would have blushed at the description of his prowess. Strong as an ox, fast as a deer, carried enormous weight of armour like silk and so on. But at the same time, those who met him describe him as slight of frame and none too big. With words he was sparing, more listening than listened to, but none doubted his authority. When Henry came to the throne, the air was full of hope and danger. Henry IV had not been the most convincing of kings, sometimes difficult to put your finger on exactly why, but he wasn't. And when he died, he was as poor as a church mouse but while everyone turned to Henry with hope that he'd put the Lancastrian dynasty on a firmer footing, there were potential problems in the air. First of all, there was the spectre of Richard II wafting around like the prospect of death and decay. Was he still alive? Was this the chance for him to make a comeback? Then there were the lords that Bolingbroke had stamped on in the Epiphany Rising of 1400, early on in Henry IV's reign. The Huntingdon family, the Salisburys, the Oxfords. And there were the rebel purses sitting balefully in Scotland, disinherited from their eldon of Northumberland. And indeed, there were the prince's own brothers. Now, brothers can be a good thing, or they can, frankly, be a bit of a pain. In the royal context, a brother can be a troublesome source of competition for the throne, as the Ottoman sultans would have been able to tell you with some feeling and Henry had an impressive array of brothers, with whom his relations were not devoid of rivalry. The eldest, and now Henry's heir, was Thomas of Lancaster, Duke of Clarence, just a year younger than him. And then we have John and Humphrey. How Henry treated his brothers would be crucial to the future stability of his rule. At the first parliament of his reign, it was made crystal clear to Henry what was expected of him. The Chancellor, Thomas Beaufort, brother to the powerful and complex Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, gave him a bit of a lecture. A good king consults with his great men. A good king gives good governance. As it turned out, Henry's first few months were to prove a model for his general style thereafter. A medieval king walked a delicate balancing act marshalling the powers of patronage to make sure every faction was happy, but none was favoured over each other, and Henry would prove to be a consummate manager. His first approach was to the noble families that had threatened his father's reign in the Epiphany Rising. All these families were now led by young heirs, eager to re-establish their families' names. So he reassured Thomas Montagu, the 25-year-old Earl of Salisbury, and restored his lands though it would be some years before he was fully reinstated into his earldom. Now Salisbury was married to one Alice Holland and therefore connected to John Holland, the 18-year-old heir of the Earl of Huntingdon who had been executed and attainted by Bolingbroke. Now he also had his lands restored and in due course would recover his title as Duke of Exeter. And then there was John de Mowbray, brother of the Mowbray executed in 1405 along with Archbishop Scrop. He was reinstated to the Mowbray lands and with the title of Earl Marshal. In this spreading atmosphere of trust and reconciliation, the Earl of March, head of the family with potentially a better claim to the throne than Lancastrian Henry, was released from the royal household, where he'd been kept by Henry IV under close guard. Now, as it happens, he was a pretty feeble sort of bloke, but nonetheless, it was a generous act and meanwhile Henry's friends showed every sign of remaining loyal. The Nevilles of Westmoreland in the north, Richard Beecham, the Earl of Warwick, Henry Chichell, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The way Henry treated his brother and heir Thomas was particularly instructive. Thomas was summarily removed as the King's Lieutenant in Aquitaine, and was also removed from the post of Captain of Calais, but at the same time he was given a very generous pension of 2,000 marks a year and the message was clear. My name is Henry, I'm the boss. I can make your life hell. But if you choose to be loyal, life will be good. Thomas was to choose the path of loyalty and service. Most dramatically, Henry dug up Richard II and then had him reburied in Westminster Cathedral and this really was a neat move. On the one hand, It's a generous act of reconciliation and rehabilitation. On the other hand, you can't dig up and rebury a living claimant to the throne, so it was a pretty clear way of demonstrating that, yep, Richard really is dead and actually (laughs) not looking too good. Henry's coronation appears to have been a great success and the ship of the new reign was launched. Next week, we'll hear about the early challenges. I have to warn you, though, of incontinence. And continents, in this case, of writing, I have blathered appallingly. And it will not be until episode 146 that we get to the actual Battle of Agincourt itself. Now, cue music, The Weekly Word. Now, what I thought would happen when I was away on a holiday was that I would think of a whole load of really cool and fruity ideas that would transform the podcast forever and turn me into a household name on a par with Toilet Duck. Sadly, that was not to be. But I did have one idea, which is to have the weekly word, to introduce an English word and where it came from. What do you think? I'm not going to do this every week by any means, But the every-so-often word didn't alliterate, nor did whenever-I-feel-like-it word. Sadly, with this very first weekly word, I am breaking a golden rule. There was some bloke, maybe Sir Malcolm Sargent, could be wrong, who said, start with a bang, end with a bang, and no-one will give two hoots what you do in the middle. Well, sadly, I am going for a damp, squib start, introducing the idea with one of purely local interest. But then, look on the bright side it can only get better. So, my weekly word is Chiltern, and I select the word because I live in the Chiltern Hills. Just to make this weekly word yet more feeble, we don't actually know where the word comes from, except that it's Anglo-Saxon in origin, and first appears written down in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle entry for 1009, what was probably actually written down in 1125. The theory is that it comes from a people, the Chiltern Siter, who occupied the hills during the Anglo-Saxon invasions. So, why am I telling you this? Well, it's one of those rather cute wrinkles, or irritating wrinkles, depending on your point of view, of British parliamentary life. The wrinkle is what a Member of Parliament means when they say they're applying to the Chiltern hundreds. There are eight hundreds in the Chiltern Hills, five in Oxfordshire and three in Buckinghamshire. Hands up, who doesn't know what a 100 is? OK, you lot go and sit at the back. We've covered this before. A 100 is an Anglo-Saxon unit of local government, a place where a court would meet and men would muster for war back in the good old days of yore when men were men and all that sort of thing. OK, so back to the wrinkle. The Chiltern Hills are now pretty well-heeled commuter land, in striking distance of London, a place of pretty villages and lovely walks along the chalk, scarp face and downs. But this is a relatively recent development. The Chilterns' relatively poor soil and hilly terrain meant it used to be the home of villains, thieves and brigands. So, the Crown used to appoint a steward and a bailiff directly to keep the law and order, rather than trusting local families and the sheriff. By the 18th century, the need for this post had died away. It became a sinecure effectively, a job with a salary but no work to do. So it became a way of distributing patronage, a wage for a job that basically didn't exist to a royal chump. Now, officially, no MP is allowed to resign from Parliament. Bet you didn't know that, since clearly they're at it all the time, resigning away for England. So what your retiring MP does is apply for the stewardship of the Chiltern Hundreds. Now, all these days, it's basically a fictitious post. Officially, there is a wage attached to it. And if an MP has an office of profit from the Crown, they are required to resign from Parliament and seek re-election. Still with me? So, if an MP wants to resign from Parliament, they apply for the stewardship of the Chiltern Hundreds, which allows them to resign from Parliament, and then they duly resign from stewardship, and they're out. Your attitude to this completely barking mad procedure will probably tell you a lot about your attitude's tradition. I will leave you alone to consider that with your conscience. So there we go, the inaugural weekly word. I need feedback, folks. Do we like the weekly word slot at the start or at the end? I can see pros and I can see cons. Meanwhile, there are a lot of donators to thank, so thanks to Lisa, Oak, Amy, Michael, Mary, Kirk, Miguel, Simon, and Kathy, Ryan, Jim, Thomas, and Matthew, not to mention Robert, Gareth, Janita, and Jesse. And then there's Martin, C.G., Tech, Daniel, Julia, and by no means least, Ventry Toycraft. Thank you, one and all. Thanks to all of you for listening. Welcome back and for waiting so long for your comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook and so on. Good luck and have a great week.